0: Welcome to our podcast here at Trinity West Church. We believe that you will be enriched by today's message. Let's open our hearts to receive God's word. Let me pray. Father God, we come to you this morning. We come to you to praise you for who you are. Messiah to us. Father, we thank you for what you're doing in our lives, through our lives, through this church, through the church. And we ask you, Lord, I ask you now to be here, to speak through me, to touch hearts so that we know exactly what you have called us to do around this issue and around all of the issues in our community and our world. We thank you, we praise you, and we offer this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen? So that video gives you a quick description of what we do. And, and if you saw that, that, it quickly told how many kids there have been removed in West Palm Beach and different areas across this uh, six-county area where four kids serves now on the east coast of Florida. But you all got, I think you all got one of these in, on your way in, this little map that tells the whole Palm Beach County idea of what's going on in this county, and we're so far west here, you're not actually on the map here in Loxahatchee, (laughs) but we still listed you at 33470 is this zip code, and if you see that, you'll see that 27 children were removed from their homes for abuse, neglect, and abandonment, just as you saw in that video, pulled apart from their parents, and sometimes siblings pulled apart from each other. It's happening right here in our backyard. It's happening everywhere in our community, and you'll catch... There's a theme to my message this morning. <laughs> if, if you don't, then you're sleeping. But the theme is, God's got a plan for every one of us, including those children who are temporarily orphaned because of foster care, because of abuse, because of neglect, because of abandonment. But he's got a plan for you of how you can be part of that. And you saw in that, in that video where it just showed all those quick ideas of what you can do, lawn care, uh, babysitting, shopping. And as they come together, they form that home. And home is where the healing takes place. Home is where everything we do takes place. We have a vision statement, but it's not just a statement. It is our vision that there should be a home for every child. It makes sense, doesn't it? There should be a home for every child. But sad, but true, it's not going on in our community. There is not a home for every child. There are kids that right now are living in shelters, living in group homes living in less than adequate loving homes because the church hasn't done what the church is called to do. I'm not just talking to this church, I'm talking about the church with a capital C. But this is our responsibility, and I'll just I'll read one area of scripture here that tells that before I get into the, the whole message. But James 1.27 says, and this is the New King James Version, it says, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. It's pretty simple. No other place in Scripture does God say this about what he sees as pure religion, undefiled religion. But this is it. Take care of orphans and widows in their time of distress. In that all those areas you saw there, those are ways you can do it. It doesn't have to be taking a child into your home, although we need you to do that. But we need you to wrap your, yourself around those families that have done that, families in this church, families in, uh, in other churches that have done that work. We need to do it. And Brian, your, your friend said it so powerfully, if it's not the church, then who? So let me get into this message. I've got a little bit of time here to talk about what God has done in my life. And as I say that, I'm going to talk about an important part of our lives, and it's integrity. Integrity is who we are when no one's looking. And I've got a phrase that God gave me through my father when I was just a little kid. Uh, I told a lie. I thought it was just a little thing. I thought it didn't matter. It was just a little white lie. And as he confronted me about that, and I finally confessed, I basically said, but Dad, it's just something little. It doesn't matter. It doesn't count. And he said, Tommy, everything counts. And that kind of hit me at 10 or 11 years old but about 10, 12 years later it really hit me. It hit me that who we are in the dark is just as important as who we are in the light. It hit me that we can't hide from God. He knows what we're doing. And it reminded me in, in truth that everything does count. And not just our, our, our thought life or where we're doing but what we're doing to the community, with the community, for the community. And especially if he's given you a, a position of power of Prominence or whatever and he's given me that kind of a position and here's what I want to get to and tell you right away I don't deserve it I look at the mirror in the morning and I say me? God you've allowed me to do this? Well God's word says he chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise <laughs> he has chosen me to be a spokesperson and I'm not a spokesperson but he's chosen me to do that and I'm going to do it because he's called me to do it He's chosen me to live a life where I'm living my life for him to do this work. And, and I'm trying to do it in, in everything I am. And that word, in, uh, that phrase, everything counts, is it's my integrity statement. Now we talk about everyone should have in their lone lives as well as where they work, a vision statement, a statement of pur- purpose. But I don't hear too many people talking about we should have an integrity statement. But we should. If we call ourselves Christians... What we demonstrate to the world is often much more important than what we declare to the world. Amen? The the world is watching us with a microscope. And we're on CNN and we're on Fox News and we're on every place they can find they're on to try to show us doing something bad. But we're doing something good and we're doing something good right here in our backyard around this issue, around orphan care, around the modern day orphan. And that is we're taking care of them. We're ministering to them. We are there for them in a big, big way. The, the ministry of four kids didn't show it there, but we have about 240 foster homes now, from Broward County up to Vero Beach and over to Okeechobee County. We've got over 400 adoptions that have taken place through the ministry over the history of the ministry. That's a that deserves applause. We support those adopted families. And if there's a family here that has adopted and you ever need help and you're not connected to a local ministry, we can be there for you. We are training our staff and our, all of our, our foster families in a form of training we call EPIC. And it comes from Luke 2.52. And in Luke 52, it just basically says, and I want to make sure I don't mess this up, so I'm going to read it. Luke 2.52 says, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And he grew in four basic ways, and EPIC stands for that. Jesus grew emotionally, he grew physically, he grew intellectually, and he grew in character. And that's what we're trying to teach all of our kids, that EPIC way to live their lives. And it's Christ-like character. It's Christian character. And we want to make sure that our kids get that. And that's one of the things we're trying to do. So if you are an adoptive family and you ever do need some support, we have support groups, we have help, we have counselors, we have anything you need to help you make sure that you keep your your child and your family strong and intact. And I got a little emotional in the worship today, and uh, I'm going to follow the notes, I promise you, on the PowerPoint. I'll get to those slides. But I told Brian this this morning. I don't have any biological children. I have one adopted stepson different than a typical adoption, but he's still, he's not my flesh and blood, and I have one granddaughter so far. My granddaughter happens to be Polish, Italian, and Brazilian. And for some reason, as we got into the the Spanish worship, and my granddaughter doesn't speak Spanish, she speaks Portuguese, but it just reminded me that she's, we have this whole world represented in our family now. And I just got emotional about what God has done in my life. And I'll, I'll tie that together in, in the end. But I want you to understand what he can and what he will do in your lives if we are really, truly listening to him and following his word and realizing that everything counts in our lives. So I'm going to jump to the, my first slide that I have in the scripture here. And the first slide is Philippians 1.6. And we'll read that. This on the screen is from the New American Standard Version. Bible It says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. To me, that is definitely an everything counts statement. He's got a plan for your life, for my life, and he's going to perfect it until he comes back or until he takes you home. And let me read that from the New King James Version because I like this too. It says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And in the New Living Translation, it says, and I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. He'll complete it. He'll perfect it. He'll make it finished in you. If you're following his will and you're living that life that he's called you to do and you're living that everything counts life. Now, when... when Paul wrote this, remember where he was, he was in prison, he was probably tied to a Roman soldier, so when he's writing this to the Philippian church and to us as the church forever, he's in prison, and he's talking about being confident of this thing that he's going to do, that you're going to do, that we're going to do until the day of Christ Jesus, but he's chained to a Roman guard as he's saying this. How does he get that confidence? We all know there's only one place to get that confidence, and it's through the Holy Spirit. It's through Christ Jesus. It's through the power of the cross and what the cross has done and continues to do for us. And we know it's there in Philippians 4.13, too, because that's how we can tell what God's doing. I don't have a slide for this, but Philippians 4.13 is simple but powerful. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can't do any of this on my own. None of us can do any of this on our own. Taking care of another person's child, an orphan child, we can't do that on our own. But we can do all things. All things. Not some things, not a lot of things, not many things. All things through Christ who strengthens us. Amen? So let's jump to the next slide I have, and it's... Um... It's also a powerful verse and I I love this area of scripture too because Jeremiah tells us a, a lot of what we are called to do and it tells us basically he's had his hand in our life before our life began. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Now again, he's speaking to Jeremiah, but it's in his word because he's speaking to us. He knew us and he ordained us and he sanctified us anybody here working still on that whole sanctification process no? <laughs> anybody here good thing cuz you wouldn't be here <laughs> when that happens that's when we get to be face to face with our lord but jeremiah also tells us in verse 29:11 for i knew the plans i have for you says the lord they are plans for good and not for disaster he He tells us, he gives us a future and a hope. We've got Scott and his daughter, Melody, helping us. They'll be at the table outside, and their T-shirt says, Future, Hope, Now. There's kids in foster care. There's kids who are orphaned that need a future and that hope now. And they're not getting it in a shelter. They're not getting it if they're not with a Christian family. Jesus tells us in Matthew, let the children come to me. How does that happen? The Word tells us in Deuteronomy 6 that we should be teaching these things to our children all day long, as they get up, and while we're walking with them, before they go to bed, we are supposed to be teaching that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our strength, all our our everything. We teach that to our children, but if those children are not in Christian homes, who's teaching them? And if not teaching them that, what are they being taught? Psalm 83, we saw it on that slide. It says that we are to be there for the orphan in their time of distress, the poor and the orphan. We are to be there. The next verse that's not on that slide says we are to protect them from evil people. It's an evil, broken world out there. We know that. And we know the great things that happen when a child is raised right, is the story that uh, we just heard. And, and I'm going to jump into a story similar to that in a minute that happened to be in my life. But I want to tell you one part of our lives, my wife and I, is God was moving us from what we thought was a successful career into a different, more significant life. We were in a training process where we were trying to help others be successful and make money, which is a good thing. It's an important thing, but it wasn't where God was moving us. And I've got a quote that I want to put up there on the slide now, and you can see it. It says, Making a living is a necessary and often satisfying thing. Eventually, making a difference becomes more important. Eventually. Maybe today is that day. Maybe today God's speaking to you. I've got another phrase I live by. It's called, I try to plow through everything I do. I try to pray, listen, and obey willingly. I try obeying begrudgingly. But plob just doesn't sound as good, you know. (laughs) So I want to plow through life. I want to willingly obey your call, Lord. And I pray that if God is speaking to you, and if it's about foster care, then I pray you move on that. If it's about something else, I pray you move on that. I pray you are obeying the call of God in your life. And this phrase is the one that got to us as Linda and I were looking at our lives. We we had kind of a midlife crisis and. I didn't get to go out and buy a Corvette. (laughs) Instead, what God did is he moved my wife and I from a life where we were, quote, successful. We were making good money. We were driving nice cars. I had a nice car. But he took us from that into a life where we became house parents in a group home for girls that were labeled severely emotionally disturbed. Why would I do that? God. (laughs) I wouldn't have done that on my own. So God moves us into that world and in that world as we have these six kids in our home, we're on a campus and there's four homes there and I've got a story to tell you about a young man and this is one of those everything counts stories and that young man wasn't even in our home and that's where I want you to know that you can be that difference maker for generation to generation to generation even if you're not a foster parent even if you're just speaking truth into a child in Sunday school or wherever it might be, you can be that difference maker so this young man, his name is Mez M-E-Z, it's an Unique name, but I hope you remember it and Pray for Mez. So when we first met him, he was a, a tough little kid. He was on the campus. A, I think I've got a picture of him. That's a, Actually, it's a depiction of what he looked like back then. It's not actually him, but we, we actually made a video of him, and this is from that video. He, would, he found gloves, he cut the fingers off, and and just walked around the campus like this. He's six years old, and he's just waiting for somebody. Come on, come on, come on. He should have been an MMA fighter, but he didn't go that direction. But he was just angry at the world and he saw no hope in the world. He was probably the toughest kid I've ever met in my entire career in foster care at six years old. He used to run away in Fort Lauderdale, Florida and run the streets of Fort Lauderdale for two or three days at a time completely by himself at six years old. During his time in foster care, we knew him for this period of time that he was in this group home, which was for the toughest of the toughest kids, that kind of the last resort for them because there was no other foster home that would take him. He got kicked out of that home because his behaviors were so bad. Now, he wasn't bad, but his behaviors were bad. He got kicked out of there, went to a, quote, locked facility, and in his time in foster care, he was in more than 50 different homes 50. 5-0, 50. Two of those homes promised them, we're going to adopt you. And then something happened and they changed their mind. His behaviors were too much for them to take. So imagine the loss that he had in his heart. At 18 years old, he gets what the system does to a kid in foster care. He gets a check and a bye-bye. So he went back to one of the foster homes he was staying with during that time. And that woman took him in for a little bit of time. He had a good relationship. But he messed that up by his behaviors. He went to Covenant House which is where a lot of runaway kids go, and he got kicked out of there because of his behavior. So he's on the street at 18, homeless, looking for a place to go, and he finds out that four kids has this place for independent living, kids who've turned 18, and we have homes for them. He comes in and he interviews, and his file's like this thick, and the guy who was running that comes to me and says, this kid, he just doesn't fit our criteria. (laughs) That's a nice way of saying, Woo, he's too bad. (laughs) We can't handle him. And I said, well, what's his name? Because we're just starting this out and we're looking for guys that we can really help. He was this unique name, his name's Mez. And my eyes just get this big. And I said, Mez? Let me go. Is he here? So I go and say hi, and we, and we long story short, we give him a chance. We give him a chance, and God starts working in his life. He remembers things that I said to him, my wife said to him twelve years ago, that I don't remember saying to him. He remembers truth and love and hope being talked to. And spoken into his life and it was that reminder now at 18 years old that God still has a plan for him and God somehow coincidentally brings him back into our world where my wife and I are working so the next slide shows a little bit about what's going on with him that's my wife and Mez and I as we're just hanging out being family we are still family now but not just me there's like Mez has about 17 fathers <laughs> so we're all watching him <laughs> he's got a lot of accountabilities. Now, the other cool part of what Mez is doing in his life is he's working for us. There's the next slide that shows what he's doing in his life. He, this young man who at one point in his life felt there was no hope for him, is now telling other kids that come into foster care, there's hope for you. God has a plan for you. He's speaking that same hope and that same truth that he remembers back into others. Now, for me, it's it's just a glimpse of what I pray heaven's going to be like, that I got to see this lived out because we could have never seen Mesby again in our life and would have never known this, but God brought him back, I think, just to give my wife and I that glimpse of the future, that glimpse of everything counts hope. And then here's a really cool slide, this next one, is I got to be part of officiating his wedding as he married this young lady, Cindy, who already had a child, and he has adopted her child as his. Now he's an adopted stepfather, so he came out of foster care and he's adopted a a child, too, and they've had two more children on their own, and those children will never experience what Mez has gone through because of the body of Christ. Amen. All right, I'm going to try to wrap this up as my time is running short, but this isn't just about foster care. There are so many Everything Counts stories in God's word that it is hard to keep track. But just think of Ruth. Ruth's a Moabite woman who God said, these two should not marry. But what did she do? She was obedient to whatever God called her to do. And her obedience blessed her. And her obedience blessed her to a point where she's an heir to the Savior. She's In, the, in Matthew, where we see that she's listed as it's, uh, this Moabite woman, and and Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, comes from this generations to follow because she was an obedient woman who knew to follow God's call in her life. She knew everything did count. And we see the same thing with Esther. Esther was there for such a time as this and millions, uncounted millions of Jews' lives were saved because Esther knew that everything counts. And we could see the, say the same thing about David and, and Joseph and Peter and, and Paul and so many different people. And, and my question again is, or is, to you all, so what about you? What about you and how generations will follow you and what will come from, from your walk with the Lord? And what are you focusing on in your life and what is important? you can show the next slide, I've read this book, Crazy Love, by Francis Chan, and it's a great book, and it's inspiring us to do more, but this quote drives me every single day, and it's fitting that it's on Sundays after the service, a lot of us are going to go home and watch football, and for a while, and I'm just, I'm not pointing fingers at anyone except myself, but I used to spend a lot of time watching football, and listening and looking at scores, and I still do, but this quote says, what's important? What am I working to be successful at? I I was part of a fantasy football league one year, and and constantly I'm going, I'm with my wife, I'm with my granddaughter, I'm with my family, and I'm looking at my phone to see, ooh, how did he do, and how am I doing? And, And I'm trying to be successful at fantasy football. Ah! So think about that when your focus is off of what's important and what God believes and what God tells us is important. It's hard to look at, it's hard to tell you, it's hard to do sometimes, but we must do it. So now I'm going to t- read from some, another book, and these are the kind of books I like to read. You see the thickness of this book? <laughs> it's a book called The Butterfly Effect. And The Butterfly Effect s- s- simply is the idea that if a butterfly flaps its wings on one part of the world, that those winds and molecules will be moved and moved and moved and as those molecules are moved, that it could have the potential to create a storm or even a hurricane in another part of the world. So it's everything counts. It's cause and effect. If this happens over here, then... Now, when that idea was first brought as a scientist uh, to the world, the the guy was basically laughed out of the, the conference that he presented it. But later on, it was written into scientific law. It's there, just like the law of gravity is, that the butterfly effect is real and it is true. But let me talk to you about how it works in us as, as people. Basically, it's, it's telling us that everything we do matters. Everything we do counts. And I'm going to read this story, and I'm going to read it. I'm sorry to read to you, but I don't want to miss anything. But it's a pretty cool story of how this comes together and how it, what it means to us as individuals and, and how, we can, how we can live this out. So I'll just read on April 2nd, 2004, ABC News honored a man as the Person of the Week. I don't know if they still do that, but y'all remember that? Do you ever see it's the Person of the Week on ABC News? Well, well, this guy who was honored this time, his name was Norman Borla. Who here knows who Norman Borla is? All the people in the room said, "Amen." Yeah, no, nobody. <laughs> person of the Week. Why? Well, this guy, beside, despite who we know little about. He's a guy who followed his passion, did what he was called to do, and dramatically and drastically changed the world. You see, in the early '40s, Norman Borlau hybridized high-yield, disease-resistant corn and wheat for arid climates. So he was the guy who's responsible to help in droughts and in difficult times, make sure there's still food. And from that, his specific seed flourished, and it's been calculated that from his work. He has saved from famine more than two billion lives. Two billion lives were saved because of this man's work. I guess he deserves Person of the Week. He also won a Nobel Prize and a couple other awards. So uh, two billion lives, I think that's pretty cool. (laughs) But, of course, there was somebody before him that opened the door for him. And maybe he should have been the Person of the Week. And that guy's name was Henry Wallace. Henry Wallace, probably don't remember, but he was one of the vice presidents for Franklin Roosevelt. Franklin Roosevelt, before this law changed, actually served four terms, and Borlau was one of those vice presidents. Most of us know... I'm not Borlaw, I'm sorry. Henry Wallace was vice president. Most of us remember Truman was one of the vice presidents and actually followed and became president. And most of you don't know what I'm talking about because you're not old enough to read that in history, but that's another story. <laughs> All right, so anyway... Henry Wallace was the former Secretary of Agriculture who, after his one term as Vice President, while, while he was Vice President, he used his power of that office to create a station in Mexico whose sole purpose was to hybridize corn and wheat for arid climates. And he hired a young man to run that program called Norman Borla. So that's how those two come together. That's how Henry Wallace is part of this transition and part of this history. So maybe it was... Henry Wallace, that should have been named person of the week, or maybe we should give him all that credit. Or maybe there's somebody else before that. Maybe it was George Washington Carver. I think we all know that name, right? George Washington Carver, of the amazing things he did with the peanut, what he did to, uh, as a scientist in agriculture, and the sweet potato, and the hundreds of things that he did. I think it's 266 things that he created that we still use around the peanut, and 88 things from the sweet potato that George Washington Carver created. Well, Let me tell you a little bit about Carver. When Carver was there, when he was 19 years old and a student at Iowa State, he had a dairy science professor who on Saturday and Sunday afternoons would allow his six-year-old boy to go on botanical expeditions with a brilliant student. It was George Washington Carver who took that boy and instilled in him a love for plants and a vision for what they could do for humanity. It was George Washington Carver who pointed six-year-old Henry Wallace's life in a specific direction. George Washington Carver was the one who gave Henry Wallace this idea that he could be a difference maker, that he could do something to, to save lives. And again, we've heard that number. Two billion lives were saved because of this work that George Washington Carver did and helped Henry Wallace to instill in his heart that then passed on to Norman Borlaug So you see, generations and generations and generations are changed because of what one person did to one child, but there's one more. And here's where it ties into what we are doing in foster care and adoption. And let me tell you this story. And I hope I can get through this, but the real difference maker was a, a farmer from Diamond, Missouri. A man by the name of Moses. He lived in a slave state, but he didn't believe in slavery. And this made him a target for psychopaths like Quantrills Raiders. And some of you have read your history books, you know these names. The Quantrills raiders terrorized the area, they destroyed property, they burned homes and farms and they killed people. One cold January night, Quantrill's raiders rode through Moses' farm. The outlaws burned the barn, shot several people, and dragged off a woman named Mary Washington who refused to let go of her infant son, George. Now Mary Washington was a friend of Moses' wife, Susan. And Susan was distraught and she just did everything she could and she found out where these guys were and she, she organized a meeting with these Quantrill's raiders and her husband. In the middle of the night in January, her husband jumps on the horse they have left, the only horse they have left, and rides across to meet these guys. His destination was a crossroad in Kansas several hours to the north. There at the appointed time in the middle of the night, Moses met up with four of Quantrill's raiders. They were on horseback, carrying torches, sacks over their head. These were the precursors of the Ku Klux Klan. Eyes, holes cut out. And there the farmer traded the only horse they had left, the horse he rode there with, for what they threw him in a dirty burlap bag. Moses fell to his knees and there alone on that dark winter night, the farmer pulled from the bag a cold, naked, almost dead baby boy. He jerks the child out of the bag and he opens up his coat and his shirt and he places that child against his chest so he could provide warmth, covers him back up and starts walking home. Moses walked through the night and into the next morning to get that child to Susan there. On that day, they committed to the Lord that that tiny human being, and they committed this to each other, that that baby would be their baby. There was no official foster care, no official adoption at that time, but they adopted that child into their life because of what they knew they were called to do. And they promised the boy an education to honor his mother Mary, who they knew was already dead. That day, they gave their baby their name, and that baby became George Washington Carver. So these farmers in Missouri who had no idea what would come saved this baby, one child, that ends up saving two billion lives. So I do ask what about you? What is God saying to you? What's your son going to do to change the world? This could be about a foster child, an orphan child, an adopted child, or your child. This could be about whatever God is calling you to be. But make sure you're doing it. Make sure you're living it. Make sure you understand that God's plans for, for you are infinitely more than we could ever imagine. So I've got one more verse that I am going to show on the screen. And this is from the message, but I love what this says. Our children and their children will get in on this. They're going to get in on God's work in our lives and what he's called us to do. They'll get in on this as the word is passed along from parent to child. Babies not yet conceived will hear the good news that God does what he says. Amen? Amen. Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. That's the kind of life that God has promised us if we are obedient and we understand that what we do counts, that everything we do counts. I thank you for this opportunity to speak to you. I thank you for this opportunity that I pray that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you as well.